I'm Barry Titchens from Auckland, New Zealand. It's my great pleasure today to be interviewing John Bartlett from Melbourne, Australia in the Issacos Archives Committee Giants program. John's a giant of knee surgery in Australia for more than 50 years. He's revered by his colleagues in Australia and renowned internationally, especially in the Asia-Pacific region, but also in Europe and North America and South America. In 2020, John was recognised by the Government of Australia when he became a member of the Order of Australia for significant contributions to orthopaedic medicine and national and international medical associations. And in this year, in 2023, he was the first recipient of the Freddie Fu Lifetime Achievement Award for his outstanding contributions to Isikos and his contributions to arthroscopy and knee surgery and orthopedic sports medicine. John, welcome on board. Thank you, Barry. Nice to be among friends. John, in your Freddie Fu Award lecture, you started by referencing Melbourne High School, and I figured it might have been important to you. You referenced the school motto, honour the work, and I am aware that Melbourne High School is a prestigious school with an outstanding academic reputation, and I believe it's one of the only public schools in Melbourne that still has an academic competitive entry requirement. And so I'd like to start by asking you how you came to, or your parents came to choose Melbourne High School for you. Were the family connections to the school? No, not not really. I grew up in a small uh, country town um, uh, in the headwaters of the Yarra River and um, was a timber town. And uh, but the schooling there only went to year eight. And um, so at the end of year eight, one had to find somewhere else to go to school. It was either a two-and-a-half-hour round trip on a bus uh, or go down to Melbourne. And um, uh, so my parents must have applied to uh, Melbourne High School and... Um, uh, scholarships were involved, of course, and um, I was accepted there. So I, in a sense, left home and lived with my grandmother from um, in Melbourne. Um, I'd only just turned 13 when I went down there, so it was a bit strange to go to the big smoke, and um, uh, it was bewildering, uh, actually. And I would then catch a bus back home uh, for a couple of hours on a Friday evening and um go back down to Melbourne on a Sunday evening, uh, which was another, gosh, it was more than three hours by the time I uh, got back to my grandmother's place. So they, they, it wasn't any family connection. I think Melbourne High School also enjoyed um, some sporting kind of uh, qualifications as well as the academic, the scholarship side. And um, uh I was doing all right in junior tennis at the time, so that probably uh, helped a little. John, I know you were in the school tennis team for three years and captain of tennis at the school in your final year at school. So were you also playing tennis outside of school in junior tournaments at that time? Oh, yes. Came right up through the grades. 
you know, those schoolboy tournaments and uh, Victorian and, and Victorian country championships and, uh, you know, under 13 right through to under 17 in the Open uh, Championship. So I, I, uh, I suppose a good summary is to say that I became good enough to be beaten by some very good players. <laughs> Any famous players that we might know? Um, well, probably the um, the one who uh, I think a couple of guys who finished up playing Davis Cup. Uh, but then I, I recall, I think I was 17 and I played Alan Stone, who um, uh, Alan was younger than me, a little bit younger than me, and um, he finished up uh, being a national champion and playing Davis Cup for Australia and and uh, Alan beat me, and uh, I I reflected on the uh, situation, and uh, I thought I'm not too sure how much I need to practice uh, and train to be able to beat uh, Alan, and I didn't think it was possible. So I thought I uh, the future doesn't like uh, lie here. I better uh, head to the books a bit more. John, we're going to talk about sport more later on, I hope, but I just wanted to ask you, were you other, playing other sports at school or that time? Yeah, well, it's, uh, everybody played uh, uh, Australian rules football and cricket, but the two sports that um, uh, I was mainly involved in um, were tennis and golf, uh, partly because I kept breaking my arm at football and had four operations on it. Um, but uh, my father was a timber man and he worked up in the, uh, the forest we called the bush and he he would leave home at uh, 5 a.m. on uh, Monday and he'd come home at uh, 9 p.m. on Friday. And in a small country town, um, uh, the older people only played uh, tennis and golf at weekends, tennis in summer and golf in winter. So... Uh, from the age of nearly nothing, I was a ball boy at tennis and a caddy at golf. So they were the, the sports that I uh, continued after I gave away football. John, when did you decide to study medicine? That, that's um, difficult because I never, ever thought of anything else. Uh, but there was no medicine anywhere in the family, uh, no nursing, no uh, um, doctors of any sort, but right from the age of uh, when I can recall, perhaps four years old from there on, uh, I was uh, always going to be a doctor when others were going to be pilots and policemen and so forth. And uh, it just kept going like that. And I recall in about um, year 10, uh, the school had an assessment of uh, future careers and they said, you've only put down medicine. And I said, well, yeah. And I said, well, what if you don't have marks to get into medicine? I said, I don't know. I've never thought about it and uh, never, ever did. So uh, it just came from, I might have been indoctrinated from the cradle. I don't know. Very good. So you went to medical school in Melbourne and graduated in 1967. And when did the possibility of doing orthopedic surgery come to I think it was always going to be surgery, uh, Barry, because of one sense there was a sort of physical side to it. Um, 
And uh, so I graduated in 1967. In 1968, what we called the junior residency or junior intern year, and uh, most people did uh, uh, general surgery and, and general medicine and some uh, casualty emergency work. And um, I, uh, not sure how it came out, but I did a term of orthopedics uh, with a man called John Critchley. And um, uh, I got on very well with him and he, he looked after me a lot. And subsequently provided references and things for me and said that I needed to change to another hospital following year where he also had a, a consultant appointment. And um, so I went to that hospital, the Austin Hospital, in 1969. And uh, oddly enough, again, it wasn't common, but one of my first rotations was orthopedics, um, this time with John Grant. And um, so this was uh, about 18 months after graduation and already I'd done two terms of uh, orthopaedics. And uh, both those men, John Critchley and John Grant, were inspiring uh, to me. Um, John Grant, you know about uh, Barry. He, um, he actually did the first ACL reconstruction using a patella tenograft in 1963 which was just after uh, Kenneth Jones had published his article in the uh, American Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. So uh, even then, uh, in 1969, I'd, I would go and assist uh, John in his private practice. He'd take me there twice a week. And uh, uh, at that kind of premature age, I already felt that I knew how to do ACL reconstructions. So were you already thinking of knee surgery at that stage? No, no, I wasn't. Um, in fact, that, that actually came much later. Um, there's a, a bit of a story there. I, I thought the best teaching in Melbourne was at the Children's Hospital, the Royal Children's Hospital. Uh, they had wonderful uh, consultants, Peter Williams, Malcolm Menlaws, uh, Bill Doig, Bob Dickens, and um, I uh, really enjoyed paediatric orthopaedics because there was such a, uh, a spread of uh, pathology. And um, while I was there, this sort of leads to where I finished up. Um, the ABC Travelling Fellows, which you've been a part of, uh, Barry, from the so-called English-speaking countries, uh, rotated through Melbourne on their worldwide trip. And Peter Williams had asked uh, um, some registrars to care for each one of the, of the travelling fellows to be a kind of a local guide. And I was attached to Rodney Beale, um, yeah. who were uh, from Portland, Oregon. And he later became a famous foot and ankle surgeon, I believe. Anyway, um, I was taking him around to the local sites and the uh, local sanctuary, seeing koalas and emus and things. And uh, he said, I believe you're finishing this year. Uh, he said, where are you going? And I said, well, I'm not quite sure uh, yet. I'm tossing up a few places. And he said, well, on their world tour, he said the two greatest orthopaedic centres from his point of view were uh, Toronto and Johannesburg. 
and I just filed that away and said, oh, yes, okay. Uh, anyway, a few months later, uh, Peter Williams, the, who really was the boss of orthopaedics in the whole of Australia, he was the censor in chief, he said, um, this is after I'd passed the fellowship in 1973. And so it's now mid-1973. Um, Mr. Williams, PFW, said, and where are you going? And I said, well, uh, I think I might go to uh, Toronto. Uh, I've made inquiries there. And he said, no, you're not. Uh, he said, you're going to Johannesburg. I said, Johannesburg? Why am I going to Johannesburg? And uh, he said, well, uh, Professor Dutoy, Gumi Dutoy, you know, the Dutoy staples for shoulders and that, uh, has contacted me and said that Australia has the worst training program in the world. Um, he said, uh, two terrible uh, fellows there, graduates there, and he'll never take another uh, graduate from Australia. So BFW said, you're going to Johannesburg, and if you don't fix that reputation, don't bother to come back. So <laughs> that's how it happened. <clears throat> I went to Johannesburg. People like Peter Williams and in New Zealand, Ross Nicholson, don't exist any longer, but um, he sealed your fate. Yes, <laughs> he did. He did, and it, and it really set up the rest of my uh, career. Um, it was strange arriving there with a, uh, my wife and a, a three-month-old baby uh, in at the start of 1974, and um, uh, there'd been a change in government in Australia after 23 years of Liberal rule, and it was now... Uh, Gough Whitlam leading, the Prime Minister leading the uh, Labor government. And that because of apartheid, they had withdrawn all reciprocal recognition of South African university degrees. And so I arrived there and the South Africans had just reciprocated. <laughs> they withdrew all recognition of Australian degrees. So, so this was really pretty tricky. And... Um, uh, Louis Solomon, the professor there, which I, who I'd like to talk about a little bit more, he um, he went into bat for me, and there was a lot of uh, toing and froing and trips to Pretoria to the government. And after a few weeks, they uh, relented, and I was registered. Tell us more about Louis Solomon. Uh, <clears throat> well, I, I I have a preamble to it, Barry, if I may, because I. Yes. They, they sent me first to uh, Baraguanath Hospital um, for uh, six months, and that was a 3,000-bed hospital in uh, Soweto, um, and all at uh, ground level. There were no two-storey buildings. One did a ward round by car, and it was just uh, massive, and um, the experience and the pathology there both uh, acute and elective uh, surgery was just uh, staggering. One could um, uh, fit about four years of experience into six months. And anyway, the uh, Andre Bathfield, a lovely gentleman, uh, headed up orthopedics at Baraguanath and uh, he welcomed me and he said, uh, uh, what do you want to do with your future career? And I said, well, I, I think I'm pretty well trained in paediatrics. I'd like to do paediatrics. He said, fine, we'll put you in the club foot clinic on, on uh, Monday morning. And so on Monday morning, I saw 90 
90 patients with club feet. There were Dennis Brown splints and serial plasters and post-operative things. And and uh, this went on for um, uh, this went on for about a month. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm, uh, Mr. Bathfield, I'm not entirely sure that I want to be a purely paediatric uh, surgeon. And he said, well, what else would you like to do? And I said, well, I think I'm quite well trained in spinal surgery because I've done the spinal injuries rotation at the Austin Hospital and the scoliosis at the Children's. And he said, right, I'll put you in with uh, Len Nankin in the spinal clinic. Well, the the kind of 100-degree uh, kyphoses from uh, uh, TB and the kind of figure-eight scoliosis from polio and whatnot, and this was all massive surgery. So I, I lasted there about a month, and I said, I'm not completely sure I want to be a spinal surgeon. Uh, he said, well, what else would you like to try? And so I, uh, the plastic surgeons do uh, hands in, Melbourne, and um, I only got sketchy training in hand surgery. I did do a, quite a couple of terms of plastic surgery, but I'd like to try some hands. So he sent me to Sid Bidoff in the hand clinic, and again, there were these massive uh, deformities and paralyses, and and then uh, one night I sewed up 21 patients with flexor tendon injuries of the hand after they'd been you know, they're all trying to stop the knives going into the chest. And, uh, well, my time was nearly up by then. And um, uh, they then sent me to uh, Louis Solomon, uh, who was the overall professor of orthopaedics in Johannesburg. And uh, Louis was the best teacher I've ever come across. He And he was an operating rheumatologist. Uh, he, he knew everything about, because there were no genuine rheumatologists in Johannesburg. There were some physicians who dabbled in it, but uh, Louis knew not only the medicine and the pharmacology and the immunology of uh, rheumatoid diseases, but he knew the surgery as well. And uh, he was uh, he was really inspiring. And so um, after working with him for six months, uh, it was time to leave and... I just wanted to be another Louis Solomon, another operating rheumatologist. And he sent me to uh, Mike Freeman at the London Hospital. So um, I worked with Mike Freeman for a short time and sort of got the hang of, uh, of uh, knee arthroplasty. So then you came back to Melbourne? Yep. Yeah, I came back to Melbourne <clears throat> at the end of 75 and... Um, and again, uh, I came back with that ambition of wanting to be an operating rheumatologist and um, set up an orthopedic rheumatology clinic uh, working with the rheumatologists. And um, this involved, uh, as you might imagine, all the synovectomies and um, uh, and uh, arthroplasty. And I was one of the uh, fortunate early ones who'd had an exposure to total knee arthroplasty through uh, Michael Freeman. So carry on. Well, again, it was interesting. One, things just fall in your lap, uh, Barry, and uh, uh, I'd known from being in Europe a short time that 
uh, rheumatologists in Europe were doing uh, arthroscopy, especially of the knee, and uh, and they were, they were doing it for biopsies and washouts and injections and things. Uh, and uh, so I, I got, it was really part of rheumatology that um, I thought I needed to understand and do arthroscopy because um, it was clearly... Uh, lower morbidity surgery, and so I uh, I bought an arthroscope with the light source. You had to buy all these things yourself in those days. Uh, I bought an arthroscope and a light source, and then I uh, a friend had, from America had told me about uh, Lanny Johnson and and his course. So I think it was nineteen seventy seven or seventy eight. I went to East Lansing, Michigan, and did a short course with Lanny Johnson, and brought back um, his uh, just about the first of the um, uh, shavers, you know, the powered shavers, and that was initially employed with um, uh, arthroscopic synovectomies, and so we were able to compare results and morbidity and whatnot of arthroscopic synovectomy versus open synovectomy. Uh, but the problem then wasn't a problem, I suppose, but the, I had a lot of friends that I've gone through uni with who are now sports medicine doctors and looking after football teams and that. And um, because I s- sort of knew how to do ACL reconstructions and knew how to do arthroscopy, along came all these sports medicine uh, referrals. So that, that led to a change in, uh, in career. So were there other people doing arthroscopy in Melbourne when you came back, first of all? Um, <clears throat> there, were, there were a couple, um, Owen Deacon uh, and Robin Williams. Uh, I, I hope I'm being fair. that They're about the only ones who were uh, doing arthroscopy. But as you will recall from those days, it was nearly all uh, diagnostic arthroscopy. There were... Uh, all those uh, uh, side-cutting uh, punches and things uh, and certainly powered shavers uh, were not in existence. And um, we would try and take out loose bodies uh, from the knee with pituitary rongeurs and things like that. And uh, then the uh, instruments started to be developed and then uh, because I had the uh, powered shaver, uh, this sort of facilitated partial meniscectomies, uh, things like that. So it, it kind of grew from there. So you were using powered instruments early on? Yes, I think it was 78. I, I think it would have been 1978 I bought, um, uh, I bought uh, Lanny Johnson's uh, Dionics Powered Shaver and uh, Neil Thompson from Sydney had attended the course at the same time and uh, Neil and I, uh, these came in a great big suitcase and um, uh, Neil came back to Sydney and I came back to Melbourne at the same time and I believe they're the first two in Australia. John, I want to ask you now about the Australian Knee Club that was forming about this time. Can you tell us about the history of that? Yes, yes. It. Um, I didn't become a member of the 
uh, Australian Knee Club, later called the Australian Knee Society, until about I think it was 81 or 82. But it started in the late 1970s. Um, there were, um, from Sydney, there was uh, Merv Cross, Dick Tooth and Brian Casey, Fergus Wilson in Brisbane, John Grant, Owen Deacon and John Hart from Melbourne, David Marshall and Glenn Maguire from Adelaide and uh, Don Johnson and Tim Keenan from uh, Perth. And they were a group in the late 1970s uh, who were all interested in ACL reconstructions especially and uh, all treating sports injuries. And it was at a time when um, uh, a lot of people in orthopaedics felt that such football injuries were really self-inflicted wounds. And um, uh, and this was a strange surgery that uh, intra-articular grafts wouldn't work. And um, so they started to present at various national and state meetings and to um, sort of encourage each other, they would... Uh, meet before the annual general orthopedic meeting and uh, swap experiences. And uh, I think we all uh, owe a great debt to uh, to those guys. Many of them have passed on now. Um, and uh, as you know, one of one of our uh, great leaders in Merv Cross passed away uh, just a couple of weeks ago. John, getting back to ACL reconstructions, they were prevalent in Australia at that time and especially in Melbourne, which was often said to be the ACL capital of the world and the unique sports of Australian rules football and netball for women created a lot of these injuries and there were big volumes of surgery being done at that time. Tell us more about that era. Where were you looking to for information from each other or from overseas or how did, how did things evolve? Yes, no, well, it, it, it was mostly uh, uh, local uh, knowledge. Uh, there were a large number of uh, uh, anterior cruciate ligament injuries, especially in those sports you mentioned, and um, uh, John Grant was a uh, leader in it and um, so as I mentioned, I, I worked with uh, uh, John in 1969 and then in subsequent registrar training years. And then when I came back uh, at the end of 1975, I had an appointment at the uh, Austin Hospital in his unit, which he'd, he'd organised. Um, so I was, uh, he was my uh, local mentor and um, uh, role model and um he had done well, he had done a huge number of ACL reconstructions by let's say by 1980 um, and it was generally thought that he'd done more than anybody in the world. Um, I'd started to travel a bit more then and try to find out more about uh, uh, such knee surgery, arthroscopy and ACLs uh, going to the uh, uh, American Academy meetings and um, uh, and when one asked them over there how many have you done and so forth 
it was many, many fewer than uh, John Grant. So the the uh, the leaders and those uh, teaching the world about ACL reconstruction had, had done a quarter of many as many ACLs as John Grant. So I kind of rode on his uh, coattails uh, there for quite a while, uh, and then bit by bit. Um, uh, some of the sports medicine doctors and the um, uh, football clubs would be sending me those uh, cases. And in fact, in, in 19, the end of 1978, um, the Collingwood Football Club, which is a, uh, has a big following in, in Australia and in, and in Melbourne, uh, they have more than 100,000 members. Uh, they appointed me as their uh, uh, club surgeon. So that led to a bit of uh, publicity as well. John, I wanted to talk about that because you've talked before about the experience of treating professional athletes and getting unsolicited publicity and how that in interacts with your colleagues. you want to just elaborate on that for us? Yes, I, uh, um, I really was... Uh, a bit immature and inexperienced um, and didn't quite know what how to handle that sort of publicity because you would operate on a, a famous person whose uh, photograph and name was all over the back pages of the newspapers. And I, I, I know you're familiar with this syndrome, uh, caring for all blacks and so forth in New Zealand with a similar situation, Barry. But uh, a player would... Um, would recover from surgery uh, a little bit faster than expected and uh, it would give an interview to the newspapers or the television and uh, and would mention my name and my name would appear in the newspapers and uh, and it it led to uh, uh, some hostility and embarrassment and um, uh, because it was almost considered a form of advertising. And I felt uh, very guilty about it and very withdrawn. Um, and I suppose the good side of it was that in order to defend myself and regain the trust of colleagues, um, I had to really be very transparent about what I did. And uh, that meant I took a videotape recording of every single arthroscopic procedure and those big clumsy uh, videotapes. Uh, they were all freely available and then uh, presenting at various meetings and a few publications. So it, it kind of forced me to be a little bit uh, academic and uh, teach more and uh, be transparent with, with everybody having a videotape of their operation. Um, so I, I suppose... The, the good part was that um, it meant that things were recorded and uh, I then found it easier to present at various meetings. John, we talked about your experience of junior tennis competitions and I want to come back to that in dealing with professional athletes and how having had some experience of competitive sport is a help for you in handling these kind of Patience. Would you like to comment on that? Well, I think it was a it was a big advantage uh, 
uh, a big advantage, to Barry, because you sort of understood the uh, the tensions and the pressures that they were that they were under. You understood their uh, incentive to uh, uh, recover uh, and. Uh, uh, and their, and being conscientious in a rehabilitation program, uh, they were very, very rewarding uh, uh, patients to deal with. You also realised that you had to uh, understand your own limitations. And although these were uh, elite athletes in the sense that they had uh, healing properties that some others didn't have, you needed to be accurate in terms of um, uh, how long they would be out of the game. So the coaches and the administrators and the players and their families would all want to know with a specific injury, uh, be an ACL reconstruction or a bucket handle tear of a meniscus or a dislocated patella or, or whatever, they would want to know uh, how long before they could... Uh, uh, train and how long before they could uh, return to play at the same level. So you, you learn to be fairly accurate about that. It's another aspect. We have a duty of care in looking after professional athletes and sometimes there are other forces from coaches wanting to get players back onto the field and how do you handle that situation in dealing with professional athletes? Well, one had to, first of all, gain the trust of those uh, people who were applying the pressure, such as the uh, coaches and managers and administrators. And if you could get to the stage where they uh, trusted your judgment, then, then you were halfway there. If I could tell a slightly amusing uh, uh, tale, when I started down at Collingwood in um, uh, 1978, uh, I met the head trainer there, a man called Harry King. He was a wonderful gentleman who'd been rubbing down a massaging place for 32 years in that role. And uh, I said to him, Harry, look, I, I shook his hand and it, it was like a, a strong velvet glove and I, I thought, maybe you can heal people just with your hands. And uh, I said, Harry, I know more about how to transplant a kidney than I know how to deal with a hamstring tear because we weren't taught anything about hamstring tears in orthopaedics. And um, he, he said, oh, John, he said, they all, they all tear where the muscle meets the tendon. Uh, he said, we, uh, we ice them, we strap them, we rest them, we stretch them, we strengthen them, and they all get better in 20 days. And uh, I said, oh, crikey. And anyway, the following week, a, a champion player, uh, you know, name all over the papers, a uh, wonderful guy he was too, but he was absolutely stark. He went down and tore his hamstring during a game and on the Saturday and uh, uh, anyway, came in and the, the coach, who was a famous uh, coach called Tommy Hafey, uh, he marched up to me thinking he this this shiny young guy on the block, you know, he said, uh, what's wrong with him? I said, hamstring tear, Tommy. Uh, he said, how long will he be uh, How long will he be out? I said, 20 days, uh, Tommy. 
And I looked at Harry King and Harry nodded his head and that was fine. Uh, anyway, I went to training on the Thursday night and uh, and Tommy came to me and he said, uh, uh, probably shouldn't mention it, he said, so-and-so said he, his uh, hamstring's coming good, he'll be right to play on Saturday. And I was horrified and uh, I said, oh, I don't think so, Tommy. He said, we'll put him in a fitness test on Saturday morning. So they put him through a fitness test on the Saturday morning and he passed the test. And so he played on the Saturday afternoon. And I was at the game, uh, sitting on the sidelines, and honestly and truly, within 60 seconds of the game starting, he ran out, uh, uh, took a mark, grabbed the ball, turned around, kicked the goal, fell over, tore his hamstring. (laughs) Well, I thought this is the most appalling thing, and I said, you can't treat people like that. So I took him up to, took him off the field, put him in my car, uh, took him up to my uh, consulting rooms, which were a couple of miles away, and I, I thought, look, I, I still don't know much about hamstrings, but this is not good. And if it's like a broken bone, you put the ends together, then it should heal a bit faster. So I, I put him in a cast, uh, uh, hip to ankle cast, with his knee flexed, and uh, put him on crutches, thinking, well, that'll bring the ends together. It'll stop them getting him back on the training track. So uh, then we went back to the ground and everyone thought, this is amazing. This is the in the history of sports medicine, this is the first hamstring tear ever been put in a a hip-to-ankle cast. And uh, anyway, uh, well, while I was putting on the cast, this was a pretty experienced player, and he said to me, John, how long have you... uh, been involved in football injuries and uh, I said well down here about four weeks and uh, he said can I give you some advice I said yes he said get out while you can (laughs) 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 anyway I'm here to tell you Barry played in 20 days (laughs) beautiful John, I want to turn to Isikos now. And before we had Isikos, we were, of course, the Arthroscopy Association Society of the Knee, and they were having meetings alone and then together, most famously for us in 1987 in Sydney. But prior to the formation of uh, Isikos, were you going to the uh, Arthroscopy meetings and Society of the Knee meetings before the merger? Yes, yes. Uh, David Marshall had been, uh, he trained with um, uh, Bob Jackson and uh, later became president of the uh, International Arthroscopy Association. And David ran a few uh, uh, arthroscopy courses in uh, in Australia in the early 1980s and uh, asked me to present it, uh, be part of the faculty and some of those, and I had attended um, the International Society of the Knee meetings. Uh, a few of those, I recall, might have been the first one I attended, might have been in New Orleans, but there was another one, as you mentioned, in Sydney when Dick Tooth was the uh, president, and uh, I pretty much had, uh, attended nearly all of them after that prior to the, uh, uh, prior to the merger, and I was uh, 
a little bit lucky. I think it was 1995. I was president of the Australian Knee Society and um, had uh, guests there. I, my presidential guests were Rolly Yakob and Tom Rosenberg and Russell Tregoning. And um, you'd been a presidential guest the previous year. I think it was Greg Keane might have been president then. And uh, but that was the year of the Hong Kong meeting. Yes. And yes. so when really uh, those such as Ken DeHaven and, and uh, Peter Fowler had, had set up, uh, with Gary Paling had set up the uh, uh, amalgamation, which you know more about than I do, Barry, but uh, it this gave me a sort of slightly... Uh, a, a prominent place in the Hong Kong meeting, you know, being able to uh, chair some sessions and things like that. So I, I was following it all uh, very closely and the, I'd been to the previous one where they had all those back-to-back -back meetings in Copenhagen in 1993. So once Sisakos was formed and you were a founding member, you immediately got involved in governance with Sisakos and held posts throughout the organisation from committee chairs to executive board, board of directors. And then in 2003, you were my program chairman for the Congress in Auckland. Tell me about your memories of that program chairman. Yes, well, uh, I was uh, uh, deeply honoured when you asked me to be the uh, Program chair uh, Barry and uh, uh, and I think the there were so many things that you achieved uh, in your presidential term. Certainly, uh, one of which was putting Isakos on a firm financial uh, footing and making it a, a prosperous society where the membership continued to grow. I remember the uh, program chairman position was pretty busy uh, accepting all these abstracts and then arranging uh, instructional course lectures and faculties and uh, keynote speakers uh, and it it was held in uh, Auckland as you say I think it was a very friendly and a very successful uh, meeting um, and it was uh, really a a labour of love. The uh, again, you know, so many things help one help uh, one's career in a way that um, uh, being a personal communication with faculty members and all these sort of uh, world leaders, uh, and importantly, uh, working more closely in the background with the. Uh, the office staff members and uh, executive director of uh, Isakos allowed me to understand the, the workings of the organisation much better. What was your experience dealing with surgeons from all parts of the world in putting together structured programs and selecting papers for the Congress? Yeah, it, it, you did need uh, a, a balance of uh, uh, regions um, you didn't want it all from one part of the world. Uh, and so reaching out to those from uh, uh, Asia and South America and Europe as well as North America and uh, New Zealand, Australia, that 
uh, it, I was very much helped, uh, uh, Barry, by having done a, um, uh, a, a fellowship tour in 1996 when I was godfather to the um, Asia-Pacific uh, region touring uh, Europe. Uh, and I know you had exactly that same role. Uh, mine was a, a big tour. It was five weeks. I think we went to about 18 different uh, centres. Uh, it began in Copenhagen and it ended at the ESCA meeting in Budapest in 1996. But through that one met so many people in all those centres and I kept communicating uh, with them all initially just on a thank you basis and subsequently on a friendship uh, basis. Uh, and they'd asked me back in 1998 at the ESCA meeting in Nice, um, which was fun in a way because I uh, I was involved in a debate with a good friend in Tom Rosenberg uh, for ACL reconstruction, patellar versus hamstring, and Giuliano Cirulli from Perugia at the time was the uh, moderator. So that was another good experience. But I'd, uh, uh, I'd met a lot of people. What's your view on travelling fellowships for young surgeons and the importance of these opportunities? Oh, I, I think they're, they're life-changing. Uh, uh, I think they're of critical importance. And the people who set up those uh, rotations... Uh, initially, uh, John Fagan and Verna Mueller, and uh, from the Asia-Pacific region, uh, Brian Casey deserves a lot of credit too because uh, uh, it was a kind of ESCA uh, to and fro North America and uh, the next group to be brought in was the Asia-Pacific uh, region, uh, largely because of... Uh, being promoted by Brian, but I think it's it, it was probably the, the, the well, there'd be a couple, but it was one of the two or three greatest sort of events of, uh, of my life. So I think it's of critical importance for the uh, younger surgeons. And later, of course, uh, the South Americans came in through SLAD. John, you've done a lot of teaching in the Asia-Pacific region, I see on your CV you've been to 36 countries and I think only Freddie Fu might surpass that, but uh, I, I want you to just reflect on your experience of teaching in the Asia-Pacific region, particularly in developing countries, and tell us some of your highlights. Yes, well, I, I, I'm uh, very passionate about the Asia-Pacific uh, region and I, I think if you look at the... Um, uh, at the authors of uh, journal articles, you see so many uh, Asian names there. And uh, I've said to encourage them that the the uh, central meridian of the central world's meridian of of, uh, of, of orthopedics, I think, is moving from mid-Atlantic to uh, uh, kind of mid-Eastern Asia. Um, Travelling around those places, as as you know, um, some of the uh, Japan and Korea, uh, Hong Kong, 
Singapore, they've been very advanced uh, for a long time. Um, when I first started going to uh, places like um, uh, Indonesia, uh, Philippines, Thailand, uh, Malaysia, they because of funding and priorities, uh, because trauma and infection in orthopaedics sort of took priority, uh, the funding wasn't quite there. And these things that we've been dealing with, sort of semi-elective surgery, um, were lagging behind uh, Western Europe, North America. Uh, but now you go to those places and um, it's very, very sophisticated. Uh, so I think they've come up along in leaps and bounds. I, of course, have been retired for uh, quite some time, but I uh, still sometimes, uh, like Tim Keenan, uh, is in a similar situation to myself, but Tim has remained very active uh, teaching and training, uh, usually in fairly dangerous places, but he does go to Cambodia quite often and um, uh, in fact there's a bit of an amusement the most recent operation I did is about six years ago uh, in Cambodia uh, with uh, Merv Cross and uh, we, Tim had taken us up there uh, for teaching purposes and uh, Merv and I got roped into doing an ACL reconstruction, neither of us having operated for a couple of years. <laughs> uh, we were very nervous. Everything took a bit longer, but we got through it all. And uh, um, But that was a, that's still a rewarding place to uh, go, places like Cambodia. John, the last time we were talking, you mentioned the concept of coaching and teaching young surgeons, and it wasn't something I'd thought about as a form of mentorship, but I want you to expand on your concept of coaching and training young surgeons. Yes, we all know about uh, just some teaching, either in your uh, public or private uh, clinics, and we all know about attending uh, 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 congresses, uh, but I thought that, um, you know, you, I was watching uh, Novak Djokovic the other day and uh, uh, and Daniel Medvedev in the US Open final, and they've got a, a, a battery of coaches with them. And you look at uh, elite uh, athletes at the Olympic Games and you look at, of course, in your... Uh, football and uh, netball codes and basketball codes, they've all got coaches, even at an elite level. So surgeons would tend to think that they're somewhat elite, but they're, they're self-coached. And um, I've, uh, I've often thought it would be of some benefit uh, to have even one of your best surgeons uh, say to you, uh, would you mind coming along uh, one day when I've got an all-day operating list and, and just uh, observe? Uh, of course, you wouldn't be interfering and you wouldn't be scrubbing up, but just observe what's going on and um, 
and uh, maybe uh, write a report for me or, or give me some suggestions because I always thought that whenever I saw anybody else uh, operate, everybody did some little thing better than I did, uh, which all helps you to improve. And um, one uh, colleague uh, did ask me to do that, and uh, I wrote about a six-page uh, report, and there were just little things, you know, just the the way they would do the uh, uh, prepping and draping before they started, uh, the uh, way they would uh, communicate with the patient before going into the operating theatre, the way they would speak to the family uh, at the conclusion of the operation, bearing in mind that sometimes they'll discharge the patient almost uh, instantly, and it's the family, uh, the, the father, the mother, the brother, the sister, the wife, or husband who has to care for the patient at home and be aware of the uh, of what could go wrong and what's normal. So I just thought that that sort of coaching is is underutilised, and um, uh, for some of the uh, older surgeons getting towards the end of their career or indeed even retired ones to do that on a more or less voluntary basis would be of value. John, I wanted to talk about work-life balance, which we hear a lot about today. And for you, you've had some interests outside of orthopaedic surgery that I'm not aware of all of them, but I, I think you've had an interest in some horse racing along the line and maybe and what are the things that you've done outside of orthopaedics as part of your work-life balance? Yes, well, I, I do have an interest uh, still in uh, uh, golf and fishing and uh, uh, and the horse racing. Um, I had to give a talk to the College of Surgeons uh, a few years ago on a building towards retirement. They had a big symposium. Uh, it was an all-day symposium. Most of the speakers were a bit depressing, I must say. Uh, but um, it it was clear that one needed uh, interests outside uh, medicine when approaching retirement. And uh, I'm an avid uh, reader with a big library of books. Um, and uh, I still in travel's been more difficult in the last few years, but I do enjoy uh, travel, um, family is always uppermost uh, uh, in your priorities and um, I uh, sort of love following the progress of the uh, uh, grandchildren. Uh, I also um, uh, love following the progress of previous fellows. Um, so I look up the contents of uh, every journal that I come across and uh, see whether fellows have been authors and I look up the faculty of various congresses. Um, so following family, following previous fellows and then uh, my reading and uh, and sports uh, maintain an interest for me. John, I didn't touch on your fellowship, but you've had fellows now since the late 80s, I'm thinking, and from all around the world and I wanted to just let you reflect on how your fellowship program developed and how you've selected fellows from all around the world to come and 
learn with you in Melbourne. Yes, well, that uh, I mentioned Louis Solomon before and what a, an influence he had in my career, especially with the rheumatology arthroplasty side of it. Um, by the late 1980s, 87, 88, uh, I was pretty busy with ACL reconstructions, arthroscopy, etc. And by then, uh, Louis Solomon had moved from being professor in Johannesburg to being the professor of orthopedics in Bristol. And he had uh, revised uh, Graham Apley's wonderful textbook on uh, orthopedics, which is uh, which was then called and is still called Apley and Solomon. And um, he was aware, at least in Bristol, he thought, um, that they weren't getting, his men weren't getting good training in uh, ACL reconstruction and arthroscopy. And so he actually started my uh, fellowship program by sending uh, uh, people out from Bristol on six-month rotations. And that started, I think, in 88 or 89. And uh, then that, that grew. And... Um, uh, yes, and there were there were many who who turned up initially from Bristol, then others from Australia and and uh, New Zealand, uh, Europe, and Asia. So it, it turned out to be a, a large number of uh, fellows who were indeed a great joy and a great uh, incentive and inspiration for me. And uh, I mentioned that it, almost to defend myself, I'd had to. Uh, do a fair bit of uh, presenting at a local and international level, but I hadn't really published much. And any publications that uh, came since then were really at the uh, instigation and through the uh, energy of the fellows. John, I've known you for more than 40 years, and on many of those occasions we've been together, your wife Carol, your loving companion, has been with you, supporting you, all that time, and it's an opportunity for you to say a few words about Carol's role in your career. Yes, well, it, she's been a, a wonderful support, Carol, and to my career, and I've been pretty damaging to her career. Um, in 1974, at the time that we went to uh, South Africa, uh, Carol had been made the youngest ever full partner of a major city law firm, and she had a big future in the uh, in the law. And of course, then we've gone and headed off for a couple of years, which interfered with her career a lot. And then um, soon afterwards, having. Uh, uh, three children in three years, with the third born on the same day as the uh, first, uh, three years later, uh, that made her returning to her career more difficult. Uh, but she subsequently became a, uh, a senior lecturer at Monash University, then a dire director of research at the Law Institute, and then the uh, CEO of the Australian Mining and Petroleum Law Association. So Carol tried to maintain all this whilst at the same time doing a Master of Laws a thesis and at the same time being a great uh, uh, mother and, and wife. So um, 
Yes. I think uh, the old saying starts off as behind every uh, great man there's a surprised woman. Uh, but she she was a big influence uh, on everything that I ever a great support, great support. And I know you've had the same situation with Jan. John, we can't finish without just reflecting on your recent award of the Lifetime Freddie Fur Award. And I just wanted to have your thoughts on the experience of receiving this award in, in honour of our late friend Freddie. Yes, Freddie, Freddie was a, uh, uh, a dear friend and as, as all the tributes to him have consistently said, he, he's just a man of, of boundless energy. Uh, he was a, a, a genuine citizen of the world who had hardly ever said uh, no to uh, helping out as a, as a guest uh, speaker. And um, uh, there can't ever be... Uh, Anybody who's published more and presented more and travelled more than uh, than uh, than than Freddie, and so when I was notified of that, I was uh, first of all uh, uh, a bit embarrassed, and you know, why me? Look at all these, look at everybody else. Um, but it, it was a great honour, which I could only except by turning it into a, a tribute to uh, to Freddie and just say how grateful the, we've been uh, for his presence on behalf of everybody else. John, uh, we've had a wonderful conversation today and I want to thank you for your insights on your career and let you have the final word before we close. I, uh, well, thank you, Barry. Uh, thank you to Isakos and thanks to you personally for your the friendship and the help you've uh, been to me. I think um, I did make a quote in that uh, tribute to Freddie, which actually came from uh, Dickie Jones, yes. and uh, it was it was just uh, three lines that you. Uh, Teach the the young. Uh, you respect the uh, the uh, elders, and um, but you uh, cooperate with the pack. You you uh, you need your colleagues. You need to respect your colleagues and care for your po colleagues. And uh, uh, Dicky called that his uh, uh, credo of the wolf pack. Uh, that's what the wolf pack does. And and I think uh, I think it's very true. We need to uh, teach the young in every aspect of uh, medicine, uh, respect the elders, and uh, look after your colleagues. Thank you, John. Thank you, Barry. Really appreciate it.